If you're growing a business or just thinking about launching a startup, this is definitely the podcast for you. This is Fast Forward, brought to you by Tech Manchester. We support early stage tech focused businesses. Each week, we'll dive into the issues that we know keep entrepreneurs awake at night. We'll chat to experts who'll share their tips and advice on how to handle everything from raising finance, making your first hire, to getting your company noticed on social media or in the press. Running a business is a roller coaster. It's exhilarating, but it's pretty damn scary at times too. We're here to help you get your business off the ground and hopefully get a better night's sleep. It's hosted by me, Patricia Keating, Executive Director at Tech Manchester. Standing in a tin shed, waiting for the van to come. Oh friend, have you seen where my golden tickets be? Welcome back to Fast Forward. Becoming a professional footballer is the dream of thousands of children right across the UK. But the sobering reality is that less than half of 1% of children who enter football academies at the age of nine will make it to the big time. To put that another way, 1.5 million kids are taking part in organised youth leagues across England. Yet only 180 of those are going to make it as professional league pros. To get to the big time, you need to have talent, you need to have drive, but you also need access to information and other resources which aren't readily available. Retired professional footballer, Gillian Dye, is here to change all of that. Football for Football is a comprehensive professional information resource platform which footballers can access online and for free. It's self-funded up until recently and now has the backing of former Manchester United star, Ryan Giggs. Welcome, Gillian Dye. Good afternoon. Now, Gillian, you were brought up just a stone's throw away from where we're sitting now at Mossside and him. Um, a football mad kid, would you say? I'd say so. Just naturally wanted to play in the streets with friends and didn't really have any aspirations to be a footballer until after, say, you know, the World Cup that I saw in 86. And then that really when the passion started kicking in. And that, what was that journey like then from, from Mossside and him to, I think you signed for Everton when you were 15? Yeah, so I had a quite a, a journeyman career due to injuries more than anything else, but I was fortunate enough to initially sign as a schoolboy with Everton when I was 15, and then I made my professional debut at around later 15 for Manchester City in the second team. And then my first team debut I made at 16, funny enough against Manchester United when I was 16. So you made you were on the first team by the age of 16. Yeah, That's yeah. That's a pretty amazing journey from the... Where did you play around here, around Moss Sideway? Where well, did you play there? I was brought up in Old Trafford and there wasn't much organised football around Old Trafford at the time. So I, because Old Trafford comes under the borough of Trafford, I played for Trafford mm-hmm. Schoolboys. So it was more towards Altrincham, Hale, Ermston, where I was playing my formative years. And then eventually I started playing representative football. I got selected for the north of England and then I got selected to go to the national school. So I was in the top say 30 in the country at the time between say 14 and 16. So a bit of a talent ID process through schoolboy football. And is that then when the scouts pick you up? Well, the scouts back then weren't as prominent or as widespread as they are now. And funnily enough, a friend of mine who went working at Manchester United's academy said that a friend, myself and I, sorry, myself and my friend, we sort of redefined United's scouting system because I signed for Everton, he signed for Ipswich, and we were both playing for England. And apparently Ferguson said, how are these two kids on our doorstep playing for 
you know, teams outside the area. Yeah, crazy. I'm sure those scouts got a, a bit of a scalping. <laughs> um, so, but then you had your, you actually got your first professional signing at 16. So it sounds like a bit of a dream, a dream journey so far. Yeah, it was, it was quite accelerated. I didn't think it was anything different. Like I was at, even at 15, 16, I was training with first team players at say Manchester City that at the time schools were quite lenient. So I used to be able to get taken out of class and I just thought it was normal that the other kids weren't there. Yeah. That they were on holiday or something. I was training with like you know first team players, um, Manchester City and eventually Wigan had a you know a pathway for me and had an idea, but unfortunately it fall out you know fully you know pan out due to injury. But I was able to t- sample it you know in the, in its purest form very early on. How much support did you have through that period of your life? Because I can't imagine like if I went home to my parents and was like, "Here, mum, like I'm gonna sign for this professional football team." That they would that they wouldn't know the first thing to be able to support me. Where did you get your support back then? It was pretty much self motivated. To be fair, my mum. Even I played nine years as a professional, and obviously a few years leading up to that, my mum's mm. never seen me play football. What? Um, my mum was out working the days that I was due to be playing football. I remember when I yeah. came home one day and I said, "Mum, you know, uh, I've been picked to play for England." I was about you know fifteen. She goes, "That's great. What do you want for your tea?" And it was. Good yeah. in a way, it kept you grounded, but then you wanted a bit of, you know, the, everybody likes a pat on the back and a, you know, yeah. a well done. And the funny thing was when I actually signed or got offered a professional contract when I was 16 and it kicked in when I was 17, I was just before I was leaving school, uh, my mum said to me, you know, so what are you going to do about a job? Because the family allowance has stopped and they need to know whether you're going mm-hmm. into education yeah. or whether... You're going to have to start paying rent, son. Yeah. So I said, I'm going to play football. And she goes, right, I know you like playing football. What are you going to do as a job? I said... I'm going to be a professional footballer. He goes, what? They're going to pay you? And that was the first idea that she knew that yeah. I was a, going to be a footballer. Yeah, or that there was money in it. Yeah. Otherwise she would have hit you out earlier probably. <laughs> oh, there was money that was going to get paid to me. <laughs> but I mean, as a, as a parent, she was probably working incredibly hard to make sure that you had everything that you needed to go and play, have those opportunities. Yeah. Little did she know it would lead you to your career. <laughs> my mum my was unbelievable. Obviously she brought me and my brother up on her own in mm. Old Trafford, as we said there, but it was it was tough, like, like I said, I was playing more in South Manchester, mm-hmm. even though I was, you know, in Old Trafford. And on the day of a game, I'd initially I'd walk from Old Trafford to Stratford, so I'd done like four or five miles before the games even started. And then yeah. all the other parents were coming in cars, meet at the meeting spot, and I, I'd already done a fair bit. I got a lift home if I scored though, so it was all right. <laughs> now your career, you've mentioned there a few times about injury, and you, your career has been um, hampered and and played by injury. Um, how difficult was that to cope with? What what did that look like? When did the injury start? My first knee operation was actually two months after leaving school. I had my first knee operation at 16. Um, and I was at Wigan playing reserve and first team football. And they rushed me back a little bit too early because mm. the game was just changing. And around 17, when my pro contract kicked in, I was actually signed it on crutches. And the the club was not what it is now. And at the time I was rewarded for my potential. So I was 17, I was one of the highest paid players at the club and I had a boot sponsorship and nobody at the club had a boot deal and I was the only one at 17. So I wasn't very well liked by the old guard because it, you know the game was changing. And I felt under pressure to play on when I knew I was in pain. Yeah. And the resource wasn't... And they let you? Well, it... well, not necessarily they let you, they forced you. Yeah. Because... They says, come on, the money you're on, you should be fit, which that's... That doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. Exactly. And I was naive. I wanted to do well. I was, you know, pushing on. And 
I tried to play through the pain and lo and behold, I had another operation by the time I was 18, mm-hmm. which was a maintenance one. And even the surgeon said, look, why are you having a maintenance operation at 18? So he went back to the club and effectively wrote me off for six months and said, this guy needs to rest. Mm-hmm. Within two months, the club had me back playing and I was on a downward spiral then. He came towards the end of the season and I'd come pretty disillusioned with club football in England and I got the opportunity to go to play in Spain. So I signed for Marbella in Spain when I was 18. 18. So I'm still the... (laughs) Exactly. Most other kids going to Spain at 18 are going bucked aft. (laughs) Uh, Exactly. Well, that's what I mean. I wasn't... It wasn't the most conducive uh, environment to to know to play well, but... Mm. As, even to this day, I think I'm still the youngest British player to sign a professional contract in mainland Spain, which was, again, a great achievement and a nice thing to feather in the cap. But again, the football, it was, I was struggling, but I was still in there and I just started taking a bit of a life experience. Yeah. So uh, from Wigan to Marbella and, and then where? Then I was on my travels again because there was a thing called the Bosman ruling, which means that at the time, um, only three foreign players could play for a team abroad. Yeah. I was one of eight internationals, so I wasn't getting in. I was 18. And in England, if you're not playing first-team football at 18, it's like a panic station. In Spain, you're still classed as a junior until you're like 21. Mm-hmm. And they're telling me, you're young, don't worry. I'm going, I want to yeah. play. And then I got the opportunity to go to Scotland, so I went playing in Scotland. Again, injuries, uh, I'm feeling under pressure, but you manage the pain, you're playing, and it was nice to be playing regularly. And I just tried to carry on playing, and but then that took me... I had to take about two years out of the game because, again, the injuries took its toll and I was struggling. So you came back to England to finish your playing career, is that right? Yeah, I was, after playing in Scotland, I was just, I had to go and work in a gym because with football, it's all legs in one basket. You've got no formal qualifications to go and put forward for a CV. It's not the same as today. I don't think the support is there. No, not at all. And I... Couldn't get a job anywhere because nobody would give you a job apart from... And I didn't want to do coaching. And I thought that I could get rehabilitate myself and get better because I did a lot of research about how to get myself better, how to get myself back playing. I went working in a gym in central Manchester and some guy saw me having a kick around in the gym and he said to me, look, I'm a scout for Man United and get you a trial. So I was like, oh, great. He said, my friend's just taken over at Rochdale. I went, oh, right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then... Yeah. Within a week of going there, I, t- I signed as a professional again after two and a half years out playing for Rochdale. What age were you then? I was 23, 24 okay. coming up to. And football was still physical, even though the standard was below what I was used to. Mm-hmm. The demands were a bit too much for my body to take. And I, I knew I was struggling. I knew I was struggling, but I stayed in for as long as I could. And I was going to retire at the end of the season with Rochdale. And I got the opportunity to go to a non-league with a team called Morecambe. Mm-hmm. And Morecambe now in the league. But the guy who owned Morecambe at the time was a you know, very wealthy guy. And he owned Umbro, which is a big sports brand at the time. And Yeah, big football one, isn't it? Yeah, and they offered me a contract that was three times as much as what Rochdale were paying me full-time. But it was, nice. only, but it was only two days a week. So it was great to be able to manage the injury that way. But again, I was deconditioning and I knew I was on you know my last legs, metaphorically and literally. Yeah. Um, I can imagine that must have been incredibly difficult. You know, something that you've set out you know, as a teenage boy, incredibly high hopes, all of this potential to see it all coming to an end. Um, how did you cope with that um, to be period? F- to be fair, because it wasn't like a knee-jerk traumatic thing, you know, playing one day and played the next mm-hmm. and stopping the next, it wasn't, I would be, I'd be almost began to accept it almost. 
it wasn't nice. Yeah. And you still, it's like the old boxers who are punching, go and champ, have one more go. And yeah. I was just trying to stay in as long as I could because that's all I knew and that's what I loved. And I was getting to a point where I started to realise I'm going to have to try and do something else. Hence, when I started speaking to the surgeons about my injury, trying to rehabilitate myself. And that's when I started getting a pathway where I was thinking, you know, where my future outside the game was going to lie. So post uh, the career ends um, and platform um, football for football starts, um, was was that an immediate move into that or what happened after the playing career ended? It was, I... Straight after football, the, the standard things, you get all these IFAs coming up to you because they want you to... What's an IFA? Uh, in, in, uh, independent Finance Advisor. Okay. So they want you to start introducing... I was thinking Irish Football Association. Uh, yeah, yeah, them as two. Come on, Gillian. And there you go. And they wanted me to start presenting sort of like ideas or investments to footballers that I knew. Okay. And try and utilise my network. And I was thinking, oh, and they're offering all this money. But I'm thinking, hey, I don't know what I'm doing. So I can't do it and I didn't want to, you know, I didn't realise at the time I wasn't, didn't want to jeopardise anything because I didn't understand it. Mm. And then football for football came about purely because I was, wanted to play recreational football with friends and I was searching online for months for a knee support to, to just to play five or seven with friends and trawling through website after website after website, researching, researching. And then I found one that said football. I went, great. So I bought this knee brace, cost me like £75 and it came and it was like Robocop. It had like <laughs> Kevlar, carbon s- stirrups at Your the side. Your knee's not going to move. <laughs> so it was crazy, exactly. But the bug for playing football was still there, so I said, I'm still going to try it. Mm. So I put it on, obviously it was a waste of time. And at the end, I'm thinking, even when I tried to break it to send it back, yeah. it was just well, really well made. And I just thought, look, I've just lost 75 quid there and I'm somebody who knows a bit about what's going on. Yeah. And how much time? Uh, exactly. So then that was the first sort of like thing where, hey, hang on, stuff I used to take for granted is not readily available, this information. And then a few other things started presenting and all of a sudden I started thinking, hey, there's a bit of a niche in the market and uh, market in the niche. So that's what I started trying to develop it. And if you think about the story that you've just told in terms of the research that you did after your knee surgery, the research that you've done the whole way through your career to keep going towards your goal, which was to keep playing playing football you've you've spent a lot of time doing that research yeah it's initially it was very selfish because I wanted to do something for myself want to get back playing but then along with my knee injury and me looking for the knee brace when I eventually got myself to some point of mobility I was playing Sunday league football just dog and duck with friends and I'm putting certain things on or I'm using certain products and my friends are saying what are you using that for mm-hmm. I'm going right where'd you get that from I'm going, right, okay. And again, the market sort of like presented itself to me. And then for me, the, the coup de grace was when I got a knock on the door and this guy knocked on and said, sorry, Julian, for one I'm a friend of your mum's. Hi, he was, <laughs> my son's just signed for Blackburn. He's, he's 12. You know, could you have a word with him? He's a bit nervous about, and I'm thinking, hang on. Why is there not a central point, a reference point for people who play football? Yeah. And there's loads of people out there retelling or telling you how to coach it, but nothing that's delivering best practice. And then I thought, right, people need to know football for when they play football and that's where it's a bit cliche or a bit catchy but that's where the name football football came from so from footballer to entrepreneur um you set out to start building a platform what did you um hope or what was the initial aim for what you wanted it to do initially i wanted to allow the anybody in the game whether 
regardless of age, level, gender or role, to be able to access exactly what the best players in the game get ordinarily. Because just because you're perceived non-elite, you shouldn't be denied elite resource. Now, we always, you already stated the figures before, not everybody's going to be a Premier League footballer, not everybody's going to be a professional footballer. But if you've got the grassroots game able to be better educated, better motivated and allowed to maximise their participation, the cream that does go to the top eventually will be better. But then the ones that don't will just have a more improved participation, you know, more opportunity and to maximise their activity. And that was the main goal of what I was trying to do. Yeah. And I think if you lift the level of everybody, then, you know, the, the quality at the top also improves. Um, as an entrepreneur, then, what are the challenges that you've that you've faced along this new path that you're on, and how have you managed to overcome them? The I, I like the phrase entrepreneur. That's quite funny, that because I'd never well, I, I'd never position myself or never you know give myself that title because I was just mentioned before but when I started football football I never owned a computer. <laughs> okay, I'd never touched one, so I yeah. didn't know. I knew it was the medium in order to get the the message out, and it was content based because I said, look, if I can build a central hub which will have the best information, you've got a chance of doing something or making an impact. But then, because football is so much about what have you done and credibility, I said I needed to create something that would allow me to have immediate authority. So that's why I almost reverse engineered it. Before you had the website, I started getting my content. So fortunately, as you mentioned before, I was able to go to my initial peer group, guys I used to play with or play mm-hmm. against, People that you like, hadn't burned relationships on by trying to is, pitch exactly, exactly. <laughs> dodgy finance deals too. <laughs> this much is true. So it was it was great that I'd be able to go to, you know, Orion gigs and, you know, post goals and say, look, I've got this idea. And they think, oh, the FA must be doing it. I says, no. The Premier League must be doing it. So I says, no. And then once we sat down and we started engaging these people, it just became kinetic and it just grew where to where we are now, where even before we had the website, we still had quite a strong collection of some of the game's top players, coaches and experts ready to detail the game, allowing people to access it, you know, to maximise their own participation. So your main challenge at the start was to get um, sort of your key uh, advocates on board and get them behind it and start sort of focalising about the brand? Absolutely, because if you didn't have that, you just have a blog. And there's loads (laughs) of blogs. And I wanted to elevate something. I wanted to be where we give each stakeholder, even the players, we give them a platform where they can authentically talk about the game and their process and their problems as well. Um, So the learning curve for me was, right, get it to a point where I had to learn about a website, had Mm -hmm. to learn about marketing, had to learn about content, had to learn about social distribution because to try and get the initial money on board you needed money to film it's just your friends and yeah. you know people you knew and because i didn't know what i was doing i went out there and you speak to some marketing or web companies who are quite happily going to relieve you of that money before you yeah. know what's going on and unfortunately that hindered me and hamstrung me because that money just ran out and i didn't have a website to show for it i had an understanding i had a very expensive education and then i realized i need to get a grasp of this and i need to understand how to deliver the product the best way i could so mm-hmm. A lot of research that I did with the injuries now became over onto web and tech. And then I realized I needed an agile platform that was going to basically service and deliver this unique content that I was collecting. Well, see, now you're talking about the entrepreneur journey because that's exactly what it's like, no matter what your background is. Mm -hmm. You've never run a business before 
first time entrepreneurs haven't mm-hmm. run businesses mm-hmm. and everything is hard. Yeah, everything you have to do yourself at the first instance. So I think, how did you do it? How did you find those learnings? Did you have a network of people? Did you go to workshops? Did you find resources online? What way did, how did you do it? I literally went out there and looked at what was already out there, what was existing in the space. So looking at football platforms, digital platforms, but then that was one dimension. Because we were so content heavy, I started looking at content-based websites, how they deliver their content, how they segmented the content and how they can put it out there because it's a football website. But when you say, people say, oh, what is it say football website? They immediately think either betting or coaching or gossip or transfers. I mm-hmm. said, no, we're a resource. So I went to the resource model first. So I started looking at which. Okay. And then for content, I started looking at Mashable. And then yeah. for delivery, when you refine, it started looking at Wired. Because I said, that's the way I wanted to go because it's not just a case of throwing gonzo football content out there or content yeah. for the sake of content. It's applicable content and it's got to be easily accessible and easy, easily applied as well. And will there be a marketplace element to it, you know, where people can actually buy products, things that you've reviewed? We will review products and we will talk about best practice because one of my uh, bugbears is a certain degree where people talk about the game and everybody's entitled to an opinion, but... It's and there's only, lots of opinion in football. <laughs> and unless you've done something or, or achieved something in the game, it can only be an opinion and not advice. Mm-hmm. So for me, I wanted to create that most credible platform where we will talk about product. And if you're going to talk about product in a non uh, or in an unbiased way, we can't have a basket. Though ne- as long as I'm the head of football for football, there's never going to be a basket okay. on on, f- on football for football. But that doesn't mean there aren't commercial opportunities we could look at, but they're going to be done in a more sophisticated, user-centric way. Okay. So the challenges were sort of finding your way, learning the art of being an entrepreneur. Um, but it's a roller coaster. The entrepreneurial journey has incredible highs and incredible lows. What have been some of your highs to date? The, the highs to date would be initially getting some of the best players to ever play in the Premier League to back the brand mm-hmm. and to feature. And these guys don't get paid. They they do it because they believe in the purpose, they believe in their journey, and they believe that they want to help people. And for me, that was something that resonated beyond anything else. Now, once that network had been... I've not even tapped into my full network yet, and we've got, as I just mentioned before, we've got like a 11, 12 terabytes worth of content mm-hmm. ready to go. We're now being approached by players independently and agents independently because they feel that Football for Football is the platform that they want their players to feature on because it's credible, it gives authenticity, and it also allows them to give something back to the game. And the highlights, again, when we get access to clubs like Manchester United, Real Madrid, Paris Saint-Germain, Sporting Lisbon, Ajax, that's incredible because they don't let anybody in and they've allowed Football for Football not necessarily me in, but the brand and the purpose of football for football into into their space. Which is a sign of success when people start buying into your brand who don't know you. Mm. Um, now, recently you have raised £150,000 worth of uh, angel investment to help drive the uh, platform forward. What was that whole experience like? It was very, very interesting because, again, it was in a space that I knew absolutely nothing about. People said, um, have you got... A deck. I said, what's no, one of them? I didn't not. have a clue. Didn't know how to, I didn't know how to present. And then, then you meet people and say, a deck should be 22 pages. Then they'll say, it's a boilerplate, two-pager. And you go in, you know what? I'm just going to try and get a meeting and just talk to them and say, look, this is what I've got. And it was a long journey to get to the point where 
to sit down with people because, because of the entities that were involved in football for football, it was always good to get a conversation. So they see some of these top players. Yeah. They see World Cup captains. Your unique selling point. There you go. And then they ask you that thing where they say, right, what are you selling? I say, nothing. And then they say, well, how much are you charging for your content? I said, it's free. And they say, you've not got a business. And I said, I disagree. I said, there's value in value. So for me, if I can create a credible platform that allows people to engage and to utilize uh, the content, there's going to be some sort of uh, benefit to it. It's almost like field of dreams, build it and they mm. will come. So even though we won't retail, we will influence how people will spend their money and give them best practice to help them save money. Well, I mean, they could have said that about YouTube, couldn't they? Or Facebook, you know, they didn't sell advertising to start off with or anything like well, that. Well, funny enough, when you say that to people and you say about, and they, Facebook, or you use Google, or you use YouTube, and they say, yeah, but that's Facebook. And they say, oh, yeah, that's good. I said, they weren't Facebook before they were Facebook. <laughs> they weren't even Facebook, they were the Facebook. So I said, yeah. listen, everything's got a starting point, everything's got an end point, but it's all about how you can put that across and the benefit to our actual audience. So what's next on the horizon for football for football? What's the most exciting thing that's going to happen next? Well, the benefit of getting the external investment from GC Angels and it was match funded with a, a private investor, it was almost like a validation because when you talk about entrepreneurial journeys, an entrepreneur starts something because they believe in something. So you have that blind faith. And then initially money that came in was from people you know. So they've got a vested interest mm -hmm. as me as an individual. It was nice to put it out there to a totally unattached, unemotional panel and a committee who've done, you know, scrutinised the model, scrutinised the business, scrutinised the brand and still come back and said, look, we want to we want to invest. And the great thing was, because it took so long to get this investment, I actually was able to, because I knew we had somebody at the table, you could beg, steal and borrow in between. So the deal that was initially put to me, I totally re-engineered before we signed it and it's now a more favourable deal for myself <laughs> and for Football for Football's future which will be a case of utilising that money to tighten up the website, achieve all the content opportunities that we've got. Then more important, just start a soft sort of inception to the market to start engaging with our audience that we know have been receptive because even in test phase, across social, we've got just across Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, we've got about 50-odd thousand uh, people who've pre-registered, shown interest. Yeah. In, but the more importantly, it's not just the numbers, it's the credibility. So we've got all like the top writers or so Henry Winter from The Times is following us. And then it's nice when Twitter contacts you because they want to know what you're doing because they found out the Olympics are following you <laughs> okay. and they want to know why. So then when you explain to them what you're doing, they said, once you start plugging in Prolific, then you know we can start looking to, to build it off. So the exciting thing for us now is to be able to plug in all this great content we've got, add to it all the time and start engaging and getting people to register on the site. Um, the more you talk, Julian, the um, the more um, it sounds like that you're an entrepreneur. Entrepreneurs generally don't start businesses to make money, and that's not one thing that you've mentioned through this entire podcast. In fact, you're steering away from it. But there is obviously a future master plan in that. Um, so, what is your vision for success? This is the vision for success is that football football call becomes autonomous. Like people don't say they're searching for used cars. They say go, go to Auto Trader. I want anybody who's going to make a football decision to go to football, football first, to tap into best practice or what, find out what's going to be relevant for them, whether it be a commercial spend, practical application or a service. So the idea is that football for football will be the Google for football for people who play or are involved in the game. And then if we think about um, advice for entrepreneurs and other business owners from you know, the, this journey that you've been on from 
professional footballer to to businessman. Um, what advice would you give other people that are out there trying to do the same thing? Maybe not in the same industry, but yeah, do the same thing. Again, I go back to the point of advice. I can give an opinion, you know. So my opinions on the journey that I've been on is that one, try and understand your market and your space as quickly and as thorough as possible. Stay true to your ideology and what you where you feel your brand should be. And again, I use the word brand purely because anybody can create a business. A brand is something that becomes a recognizable business or one that can be scaled. So stay true to your brand values and also don't be put off by the lows, as you mentioned before, the roller coaster, that perseverance. I didn't believe when, when I speak to people, I think even, you know, obviously guys are involved in, say, you know, this sort of project, you know, that perseverance seems to be the the driver that gets people through. So just, you just, you, you know, it's, it is cliche and, you know, hate about that, but keep going because again, six months ago, 12 months ago, there was nothing going on, hmm. but I, I still had my belief, but nothing was happening. And then since you kept going, you got the conversations, you get in front of people and you stay positive, positive things happen. And then from that, it's now become the point where nobody wants to give you money. Now, everybody wants to give you money. <laughs> Is there anything that you wish somebody might have told you uh, a bit sooner before you learned it yourself? Um, where you're like, God, why didn't anybody just tell me that? It literally was about funding. Yeah. I didn't know it. I, I really I only thought that happened with big businesses. I didn't realise startups and all these sort of things could be available, you know, whether it be I think there was business growth over one of them and mm-hmm. all these other, you know, sort of like, you know, you know, Tech North and, you know, all these things yeah. and obviously what you guys are doing. Manchester yeah, Tech exactly. And I, I just didn't know. And because I didn't know how to present to certain things like that, I think it's that's I wish I would have known about that because that would have accelerated stuff. But then on the same token, the, the the long lead in has meant I could step take a step back, learn a bit more about it and just see what the landscape was like. And so when the money does come in, you can maximise it, you know, you know, a lot more. But yeah. funding, if, if understand your business, I wish I would have done that quicker where I could influence it a lot more. So I'm, I do everything to do with design, the marketing strategy, the content build, the content creation, content procurement and content delivery. I'm not a control freak, by the way, but I just... <laughs> You're the content king. I had to realise I needed that to keep <laughs> yeah. the funding that I was getting spent in the right areas. But then obviously when we look to scale in the new year, that's when we'll start getting the clever people in and they'll be more qualified and better positioned than me, but I'll be there to give the stir. So the stir, sorry. So I think the main thing would be um, know about, you know, if we wish I would have known about funding a lot earlier. <laughs> well, well, we'll do... Uh, is include some of the information that we've collected at Tech Manchester on uh, funding in the show notes. So if there's anyone that's interested in maybe exploring that or learning a bit more, we've got a whole ream of podcasts, uh, video workshops, blogs, um, which shares everything that's going on in funding in Greater Manchester. So uh, hopefully for the next entrepreneur, it might be a little bit easier. Good um, luck. Thoroughly enjoyed um, listening to your story today, Julian. I cannot wait to see what happens with football for football over the next um, 12 to 18 months and see the platform launch to no doubt incredible success. And um, we hope that's answered your story, your questions around um, how to make that transition into the role of an entrepreneur and also any challenges that you have around funding and overall give you a better night's sleep. Thank you.